Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcasts. G'day and welcome to an extra, extra special cinematic edition of Thrush and Treasure, the torture chamber musical comedy podcast that swallowed both the red pill and the blue pill. Speaking of pills, I'm Aaron and I'm joined unusually by a second generation guest. You've heard her father, Jonathan X, twice before, and now she's here to show him how it's done. She's a young, talented, and darn gorgeous upcoming filmmaker from Hollywood. Everything that I hope to be when I grow up. Please welcome to the show my guest co-host for today, Miss Aria Jackson. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. That's all right. Thank you for doing this. Obviously, um, with Gareth off, uh, everyone at home will have learned by now that Gareth is taking some time off for his work. So thank you for stepping in. I thought with today's guest, you might be able to get some insight or at least have some common ground in terms of filmmaking. Yeah, I love talking about cameras and equipment and just anything filmmaking. It's like a little gossip session. So it's always fun. Yeah, now you, you must be able to talk to your father quite easily then uh, in a way that I am unable at all to talk to my dad. No. <laughs> I mean, it's different because my dad does live TV and I do more like narrative film or commercial. So they're different worlds, but we're still directors at heart. So it's easy to be like, oh, were you bossing people around today? And he's like, yes. And I was like, ah, me too. We both have that in common. And would you ever collaborate with him on a a creative project? Uh, Probably. It's funny because we've done an interview together before. It's like a father-daughter directing duo for a like a Father's Day thing. Oh, lovely. And the guy asked that question. He was just like, are you guys going to work together? And him and I were both like, ugh. <laughs> but maybe. I think I think we'd pop where we might be doing something. Yeah. Maybe we'll do like a mu- music video or something soon. But my dad's style and my style are so different. He's very like chaotic. Very punk rock. Funky. Yeah, very punk rock. And I'm more just like, ah, cinema. So Yes. <laughs> but right. I, I'm trying to learn more from him to be less, uh, like less to the rules and experiment more. So I'm trying to experiment more with my upcoming projects and stuff that I'm working on. Yeah. Well, you, you do have to know the rules in order to break the rules. Exactly. I was really surprised with um, Merrily We Roll Along because when you turned around and said you love that, I was like, hey, that's cool. Because, yeah, she yeah. was in the original Broadway. But it just, yeah. it didn't, it wasn't a thing. I you know. I'm going to text my friend that was in that play. That's why I saw it so many times. And I'm like, oh, I just did an interview with the original Broadway cast. And she's going to be like, that is so random for a Monday if I just text her out of nowhere. And I'm just like, because my friend Riley is really into Broadway. Yeah. Like she's such a theater person. Oh, wow. Yeah. She might like the, the podcast then. Good oh, yeah. When I, halfway through, I was just like, damn. I was like, Riley should be here. She's the theater girl. Yeah. But yeah, she was in that. So I saw it three times. But I really loved it. It was, it was a really good story. And I think it, it, I relate to it a lot because I, I was in the same type of relationship with two friends that mm-hmm. recently I cut them out because I was like, this relationship is not healthy anymore. So that's why I like the play to so much because it's pretty, it's really accurate to yeah. how uh, ego and stuff ruins artists, friendships. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think everybody I can about. relate to it. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about it. No, I <laughs> I mean, I'd still like to go to Australia. It seems like a very nice place. I've always, it just seems, the only thing that I think is scaring me is like the bugs. Cause I've seen the photos of like the spiders where they're just like that big and just like hanging out in like 
your ho- your house and your hotel and it's just like normal and I was like I cannot do that yeah, like I would be so scared fun. to go to bed every night and then have that fear that a spider is in the sheets that's crazy that you can't house proof your like you can't spider proof your house when they're that big no like tiny spiders it makes sense because you're like oh yeah they slip in but like no when they're that big I'm like how do you let that get in that's well the the thing yeah I think the biggest one I've seen has probably been about that big with its legs spread out yikes and um I remember stepping on it and the the blood or the green gooey ill and uh, yeah it was massive that's probably been the biggest I've ever seen and I actually thought about that the other day because I was thinking about where it was and I was sort of wondering how it got there, where it had been beforehand for it to have crawled to that spot. Was it in my room? Ew. Was it in the Lego room? Was it in the linen closet? This was a while ago. I don't know. Why was I thinking about this awful spider? But it was massive. And I, I, I would like to know because I would like to know if it was a nest. If we have a nest in the roof or something, I don't know. That's but I, so I, nasty. I, I can't talk about spiders anymore. I get really really paranoid i guess you could call an exterminator but yeah also that spider sounds big enough it probably left footprints so you could just see if there's footprints on the wall that's yeah uh but guess what what we have another legendary diva in the studio today and just when you thought we had reached the pinnacle of broadway legendary in struts our next guest a strong, infinitely talented artist who merrily rolled along to Broadway, making her debut in the now popular Sondheim Classic before tapping a Tony Award for her sublime performance in today's chosen musical. And that certainly wasn't her last jam, with dozens of appearances on stage and screen, including All My Children, Above the Rim, Caroline or Change, The Wild Party, and Enchanted, to name but a few. And not content with showcasing her gobsmacking talents in the spotlight, she's now donning the felt scarf and beret as director of her debut feature film, Red Pill. But today, she's here to endure the horrors of our show. Please give the warmest, most Aussiest g'day. How's it going? To the gazillion award-winning, and this is a fact, you cannot spell Tony Award without Tonya. (laughs) Please welcome Tonya Pinkins to the show. How are you doing? Good day, Aaron. Good day. And Ari. You've, you've been traveling around a bit, I believe. I have traveled all through this pandemic. Lucky me. Yes, you are very, very lucky. Mm. So it's morning here, so I, I do need to top up on my coffee. Well, that's coffee. Yes, yes. It's a instant coffee, which means I hate myself, uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, obviously, um. We're gonna we'll talk about Red Pill later in the show, but for those at home, you've been doing the festival circuit. So you have been here, there and everywhere and sweeping the awards like, oh my goodness gracious me. I have seen every single one of those tweets. And so as I, I would have explained that I invited Aria on because I thought, well, here we go, we can we have a, a younger generation, a, an upcoming filmmaking talent can can learn firsthand that at, after all these accomplishments that you have had. Now you are making a debut film. Yes, never stop doing new things. No, no, I've said it before that an artist is never satisfied. Stars might be, like celebrities might be satisfied, but an artist is never satisfied. And I think that that's a really important point that you make, that, um, you know, a celebrity is a very specific thing. And Mm -hmm. I always think that a celebrity is is a commodified product. And 
people know what it is and they know that every time they come to something, this is what you're going to get. It's like Starbucks or, or McDonald's. Like, oh, it's a Bruce Willis movie. We know what we're going to get, yeah. you know? And that's a choice that, that people make. But if you are interested in just being creative, it's hard to be creative and be a celebrity because you can't do things that are off the brand that's being sold. Uh, especially these days that everything is about branding. I mean, even this show, which is a, a pitiful little show, we have our branding and our, our, the language that we use every week in our intros, you know, we, it, it just, it happens like that. And I keep hearing the term branding, 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 branding. And I, I'm, I'm starting to think, what is it? What truly is it? Because if, if you're an artist, you're going to come up with, going to explore. If you're an artist, but if you're an artist. If you're a celebrity, you're just going to do this thing and they're going to sell the hell out of it and they're going to keep selling it and you're going to keep churning it out until you want to vomit. And then you're going to end being a celebrity and go off and do your thing. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that for certain incredibly talented artists, their brand doesn't exist until after they're dead and someone decides mm -hmm. the brand and I'm going to eliminate any work that doesn't fit in the brand and I'm just going to. Mm -hmm you know, push this work. Now, it's funny you say that because the musical we're doing this week, Jelly's Last Jam, Jelly Roll Morton, he didn't have his brand until after his death. So it's, uh, it's been happening for a long time. Yep. I mean, even, it's been happening since Mozart, I believe, or, or one of those Beethoven or whoever it was that died. Since capitalism created brands. <laughs> <laughs> that is, it, it is capitalism, isn't it? Uh, we'll, we'll move on because uh, we're going to talk about an anti-capitalist now because this week uh, Aria's father Jonathan X a, a friend of the show he's been on twice now he was on just last week helping me interview Josh Lehman yeah so this week Jonathan picked Iggy Pop's raw power for us all so I, I apologize in advance and if we don't like it we can blame him so none of us have to take the blame perfect which is uh it's funny because both Jonathan and I were, were you know quite different ages I think one thing we've we've always bonded on is punk but I've never really listened to Iggy Pop well let's do it I've listened to Iggy Pop and I, I listened to some of the album too before joining you today and yeah. how did you go uh good you know I like pretty much all kinds of music there's really not a kind of music that I don't like yeah well I, I know you've traveled a fair bit and on foot like grassroots uh, backpacking which um look I, I've traveled to China as well which one of the stories you were talking about was China but I went in a cruise ship <laughs> so I went in luxury uh and then I got driven around in a in a coach in a bus so that was fine um so, so just on that traveling around what sort of experiences have you had with local music um in Bali I got to listen to this amazing musician Balawan and yeah. Um, Balwan, they actually um, have a guitar that is like his guitar, that is a guitar that has two sets of strings, and he usually uses it to play um, MIDI concerts, and he does his own version of classics, plus he has his own Balinese music, but... Mm -hmm. When they've studied him to try to write down the music that he writes, they find that he never fingers anything the same ever. Wow. It's one thing to go in, in a New York theater or a Melbourne theater and see a touring production, but to see uh, this traditional music in, in that setting, uh, in the extreme heat, but wonderful at the same time, of course. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's been an experience hearing that native or well, traditional music in, in the native countries because it's just, mm -hmm. it's so much more authentic. Anyways, yeah, so we'll move on because what I've done is I've written a, a review, uh, even though punk is my genre. 
metal's not my genre, but punk is. But I didn't know Iggy Pop, and I didn't know this album. Uh, so I've written a, uh, a, a review. So we'll see how we go. Okay. All righty. When I first saw it was Iggy Pop, I suddenly felt ashamed in myself. For all my mousing off about my punk salad days, I've never really given Iggy Pop the time of day, apart from Lust for Life, which has more to do with its appearance in train spotting. Anyways, it didn't surprise me that the opening number was called Search and Destroy, for someone has clearly searched and destroyed the masters of this 1973 masterpiece. The next song, Give Me Danger, had me wishing they'd give me silence, or in the very least, a painful death. Not that it would matter, after these jokes, I'm going to hell. Along with track three, which was a little bit grainy, head thumpy, and utterly distorted. And no, those are not the newest Seven Dwarfs. I did tell you I was going to hell. Anyway, Penetration is the perfect title, as this is exactly what it sounded like every time I hooked up with some drunk punk in the back alleyway behind the House of Fools pub. No doubt whilst handcuffed to my equally foolish bestie. But every time I listened to this track, I kept checking my phone. Which is exactly what it looked like when I hooked up with some drunk punk in the back alleyway behind House of Fools pub. Speaking of which, Raw Power, the eponymously titular track, was actually quite listenable, despite the literal raw power of this 1997 remixing. But overall, this hard grainy quality works best in I Need Somebody, Don't We All? as the bluesy sound of this sixth song synergizes with the sandy sounds. I also liked Shake Appeal, which rang of a strong influence from proto-punk bands like The Who. But I must say the six minute length of the final track made this pretty standard punk ditty exactly that, a death trip. Overall, some decent songs, but the bootleg quality kicked me in the migraine, when punk should kick me in the face with raw power, not grains. Three and a half stars. Three out of what? Uh, out of five. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay, okay. That's not as cruel as it could have been. No. No, actually, I did like it. See, these reviews are cruel. Oh, no, not cruel. They're dead. Oh, did I come on here to be abused? <laughs> no, no. He's like, and now we will talk about your film. <laughs> the review of Fred. <laughs> I, actually, I actually reviewed someone's music in front of them recently without them knowing. Oh my God. So I, I got all the way through the review and then dropped the microphone saying that I had reviewed, reviewed his music. But yes, no, I, I, I was tempted to write a, a review like that for Red Pill, but I thought, no, I'll be nice. You're a Broadway guest, not a, a metal guest. Okay. Are you going to do a review of Jelly's Last Jam too? Uh, no, no, because that's my genre. So usually it would be Gareth who who would stumble his way through. But um, at the moment, he's sort of taking, he's got a day job. Oh, yeah. He's got two day jobs, actually. So he won't be here for another couple of weeks. And he's actually on the opposite side of the country. So he's the same distance away as, as you guys are. And basically, I'm having guest co-hosts from all over the world. Uh, like recently, I had F. Michael Haney, who I believe you did um, Holler If You Can Hear Me With. Yeah, yeah. Tupac musical, yeah, um, which uh, unfortunately we never got to hear. I'm quite disappointed in that. Like, I, I would have loved to have heard that. Yeah. To see how it, it was translated. Um, well, just on that, when, because at, at the time that was released, the, the reviews were quite, well, the, uh, mine are scathing, but mine are deliberately, stupidly scathing. They, and they were saying that hip hop or well, rap wouldn't work on Broadway. Not true. Like, two years later, Hamilton. <laughs> 
Yeah, Hamilton is, you know, its own thing. Um, I think the challenge of Holler, if you hear me, was that they didn't commit to Tupac and the 700 million albums that he's shown and marketed to the audience that would come. They tried to make Tupac appealing to a Broadway audience rather than going to the audience that loves Tupac, inviting them in, and then nobody else could get a ticket, then it would have been a hit. Um, knew the Broadway audience wasn't going to come, but they would have come uh, had it not been something they couldn't get into. And the wonderful thing about the producers, Gold Theatrical, is that they the show was fantastic. I'm really proud to have been a part of it. And they they gave away the tickets. No Broadway show I've ever been in has someone given away the tickets. So we had standing ovations every night from people who, you know, probably could never have afforded to pay for the, the, the maybe they could have, they, it would have been like a concert ticket, but they loved it and they yeah. never marketed to these people. <laughs> what a shame. Absolute missed opportunity. Yep. You know, and you, hopefully like with programs like the Encores uh, City Centers um, series, hopefully they would at least do a concert. Nah. You, know, you don't think? Encores, no. Yeah. Because it's still, you know, Encores is still doing a legacy of, you know, yeah, true. the great white way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, the, uh, the Hello Dollies of the world. The IP is what matters. Like, I'm like, anytime you're going to yeah. put black people in some white stuff, that's just get out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, like, write something new. Like, I mean, look at Jelly's Last Jam. That, oh, we'll get to that. Exciting. The music in that is frigging exciting but anyway so we're on on Iggy Pop right now now Aria I want to know with with your father how much have you been forced to listen to Iggy Pop and the Stooges over the years uh probably a lot by just proximity because growing up and even now he has so many like speakers in his office and he turns into a teenage boy because he just blasts it incredibly loud so everybody can hear it in the house and it drives the dogs crazy but I've definitely listened to Iggy Pop a lot and my dad also every time he listens to him he always tells the story about how uh his college band opened for Iggy Pop way back when oh wow so he's just like yeah you know like we opened for him and it was like (laughs) so crazy and blah, blah 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 and it's like okay but um I mean, I like him, but I agree with you that the album was definitely painfully mastered because there were sometimes certain songs when I have to like lower the volume because my ears were just like, ah, mm-hmm. and maybe it's like the tinnitus acting up, but there was definitely some frequency issues, but it yeah. Was. And then I think my older sister got him a signed Iggy Pop album from Iggy Pop a couple of years ago because my sister works in the music business a little bit. So mm-hmm. she had the opportunity to meet him. And she was like, oh, "Oh, my dad's a huge fan. Can you sign this? (laughs) And he was like, yeah, sure. Oh, lovely. But I'm not, I'm the same way where I can enjoy all types of music, but I'm just so bad at like categorizing music. Like I can't listen to something and be like, oh, this is that. And I'm just just like, well, it sounds like this. It's just so hard to put music in a box and being like, oh, this is that. That's just my one fly I've always had is where I can listen to a song and I'm just like, I don't know what this is. And I'm like, but it sounds like rocky, but it's just like, I'm just like, I don't know. And and that's what this show is sort of for is to discern the difference. Um, Even in metal, there's heavy metal, there's new metal. Uh, there's something I invented, apparently, proto-metal. Uh, there's progressive metal. Um, there's all these different genres. I have no idea. And I'm start like learning. By now, we're on episode 30, 
uh, 31. So I've gone through a lot and, and learned a lot, although obviously we're, now we're doing punk. Um, now, the, the distorted quality of this is fine when you're in a pub and you're on your fifth jug of beer, mm-hmm. 16 years old, and you and your friends are screaming in each other's faces anyways, and you're slamming into each other. I, I'm going to talk about it in episode 40 with Andrew Koba, uh, a wonderful guest coming up, one of the, the morons, not an insult. And um, yeah, we used to be in a slam pit. It feel good slamming into someone. I had been a theater nerd before that. I was getting picked on and bashed up just for being a, a gay boy. And now I had a mohawk and piercings and a leather jacket and tattoos. Like at 16 years old, I was a bit of a rebel. And I changed, obviously. I grew up from that um, a little bit, hopefully. Um, but you know, it did because it was... It, we were just expressing ourselves in the most stupidest way possible, really. Why it felt good? Um, maybe because we were drunk. <laughs> probably because we were, we were very, very drunk. No, that's probably what it was. It was all the alcohol. But no, we we loved those those pub gigs. Like, cause they were the back rooms. They were dirty and yeah. <laughs> Nasty. I definitely excited for the live music scene to come back once COVID is yes calmed down. I'm ready to. Mm-hmm. get drunk in a crowd and listen to music yeah maybe not get that close to people i'll be like all right let's not get too friendly but i'm excited to listen to music in person again and definitely musicals i am a huge fan of musicals and tanya i saw you were in merrily we roll along and that's one of my favorites i saw that one at least three times i don't know why the story of that just hit so close to home but i was just like damn this is a really sad. Was it three music. productions? Or no, my one of my friends. She was acting in like an indie because it's LA, so there's so many theaters. So one of my friends yes. was acting in it. So I saw it three times because I went once just to support her, and I was just like, "Wait, why do I love this musical?" So I went back two more times. Extraordinary. Is, is that a a shock? How it's grown from the reception that it got at the time. Because, I mean, being Sondheim, everyone was wanting, you know, the next great Sondheim musical. And it just, it didn't. And then, but it grew. It grew. It had had a life. Mm-hmm. It was ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, it was talking about some dark truths. And America was still in this phase of, which it's still in, of not wanting to see the the shadow of itself. It's to look yep. at its shadow. So mm-hmm. it was way ahead of its time. Which knew at the time that it was ahead of its time it's like Hal kept a letter of mine in his archives and they sent it to me this letter that I wrote to him when I was 19 basically telling him that the the musical was ahead of its time oh wow how good this way and and to think that they've got the movie coming out and that's gonna take yeah 10 something years to make which is so disappointing I know after I saw the play I was just like why has nobody made a movie about this and when I saw it was gonna take 10 years I was just like oh I should just make it. They should just give me the rights and I'll make the movie. But um, yeah, it's disappointing that I'm going to have to wait so long or we're all going to have to wait so long to see the feature film. Did they say why it's going to take? No, because they're filming it in real time. Oh yeah, what they did with like, um, what was that movie? Boyhood? Boyhood, yeah. Yeah. It's not, I mean, if they were going to film it in real time, it would be way more than 10 years. Oh yeah, true. Yeah. High school to like, you know, their 50s. So yeah. <laughs> They're giving themselves 10 years, so they're still going to have to add makeup. Yeah. 10 years in modern times, people don't age that much in 10 years anymore. <laughs> yeah. And that's true. Although sometimes when I look in the mirror, I think, what the hell happened? 
Me too. And then I remember, yeah, I raised my sister's child. That's what happened. No. That takes it, that me. takes it out of you. Oh, tell me about it. That's <laughs> eleven years. Mm. But I also like to go from my younger years acting like Iggy Pop in a pub. Obviously, that aged me quite a fair bit too over over time. But yeah, no, it, it's there were some really good songs on here, but I just thought that the distortion it really let it down. Um, mm-hmm. Which it's probably so anti-punk rock of me to say that. I, I can feel the daggers being stared at me right now from everyone all around Melbourne. Mm. Yeah, I used to get drunk with those people. We used to go from pub to pub to pub. It was a Melbourne punk's pub crawl every year. Obviously not last year. Now if they see you again, they're going to be like, dude, yeah, it's on site immediately. They're just going to be like, get him. Oh no, I've bad-mouthed Iggy Pop. Uh-oh. <laughs> but no, look, I, I didn't really know him, like his music. I knew Lust for Life, as I said in the review, I... It was in train spotting. I don't had it. How have I gone this long? How did I have a mohawk for five years and not hear Iggy Pop? That's what a lot of people are saying. Like my boyfriend, he's a musician. And when I told him about the podcast and that we were doing Iggy Pop, he was just like, I haven't really dived into Iggy Pop. And that's coming from an act like a musician. He was just like, hmm. So yeah. I guess he's just an overlooked pop artist. But he's not, he's iconic. Yeah, which is weird because when I say, like, when I talk about Iggy Pop, because I've mentioned him before, just because p- if people ask if my dad was in a band, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, he performed for, like, with Iggy Pop for a little bit. People are just like, who? And I'm just like, how do I know this? Yeah. And I'm not, like, the biggest punk head, but I still kind of know who Iggy Pop is. Yeah. And he's still alive, too. He's still yeah. he's still performing. Somehow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he just needs sunblock. I think looking at Iggy Pop, it's just, you should probably wear sunblock. But yeah, that's, yeah, he's see him on his uh, website. He's like, you know, shirt off. Uh, yeah, got a whole crowd of people in there looking like they would like to slam into each other. But the photographer said, hold back so I can get the light on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Girls <laughs> said, hold back till, till I get out of the way and then go slam into each other. So I'll tell you what, it hurts. It really, it hurts the next day more so at, than at the time because mm-hmm. I mean, we had leather jackets with spikes on them. Like this was a full on punk old school. This wasn't skaters with their socks up to their knees and their skateboards underneath their arm. There, there was no pop punk where we were. It was full on thrash mm. in your face. It, harder, much, much harder than, than this music. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I don't it, know how, how you guys in uh, the punk or just any type of body mashing don't take it personally. Cause there has to be somebody that's in there that's just like, I actually just want to start a fight and just push people really hard. People who find something sort of sensuous about a little bit of intense feeling, like the intensity of feeling is an, is a sensual, sexual thing. That's what I was imagining must come of it. Possibly, yeah. <laughs> Maybe for the older ones, not necessarily us younger ones that were, were a little bit more innocent, a little bit more. <laughs> um, but when it comes to, to someone being there just to start a fight, they would have to go all the way for that. They would have to dress up because otherwise if they walked in in just jeans and a t-shirt, all eyes would have been on that poser. What the hell are they doing in our gig? And we would have chased them away because why are they there other than to start a fight with us? Mm. You know what I mean? Like it was our, it was our safe space. It was a safe space before this whole safe space word got thrown around so much because it was just our gigs. That's what they were. And like, there would be, 
times when like at um, a certain pub in in a suburb called Richmond at a pub called the Birmingham and at maybe 11 o'clock each Thursday night legitimate skinhead Nazis would rock up yeah and that's when us younger ones would get the fuck out part of my language we would get the hell out of that pub because we knew what would happen you know what's crazy in LA there's this place called the catch and every yeah. night oh yeah different group of people so like the first time I went there it was the BOI night which if, I don't know if people know what boys are but boys are people who were born with um feminine genitalia but they identify okay. male and they don't want to date lesbians they want to date women so I went there and it was like the best best time and the mm -hmm. folks on the pole were male you know, and so I showed up another time on a different day of the week because I didn't understand that. And it was, it was like neo-Nazi night. Oh, shit. Gas masks. Oh, no. <laughs> and I was there with some Jewish folks. It was. Oh, no. God, that's, oh, my God, fathers. That's terrible. That would have been terrifying. Like, I, and I know what it's like to be in that pub and, and these Nazis walk in and like the older punks looked after us because we were very much Nazi punks. Fuck off. That's was, that was the saying. That was a song, the dead Kennedy's song. So they weren't welcome where we were welcome or where we were anytime. Um, and that would be a matter of get all the younger ones out of there, get them all. Cause we were underage. Obviously we shouldn't have been there at all. Um, but yeah. And, and obviously no mobile phones. This was 2001. Mobile phones calling for help. Exactly. Like 2001, 2002, 2003, you know, being 16, 17 years old, we didn't have phones on us at all. Not for another five or six years. So yeah, no, that they were scary times when they rocked up, I tell you that. So I cannot imagine what that would be like to walk in and there's a whole bunch. Oh my God, no. Oh God, that, that would terrify me. Goodness gracious me. But I, I think we've... Um, it's a great club in LA. It's off Crenshaw on, um, I think, like Pico. I think it's. I th it sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of like dance clubs in LA. There's and a lot of like warehouse places. Like it's so hard to like hit everyone. But a lot closed There's down. A like the Echoplex, I think, is closed permanently. Like a lot of those places got shut down with COVID. Oh really? There's a movie filmed in there. I'm trying to remember it, but she sort of she went into all of those clubs and she filmed the um the gay women scene. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that scene was women dancing for women. And, and there was a safety and a sensuality to it that wouldn't have been there if men were there. And the way she <laughs> filmed with these little, it's like you are right up there close with these people. It's almost like you as the audience are having a lap dance in your lap. And you realize that that safety that they felt to, to move this way was because it was all women in the club. Yeah. And that's what it was like for us, like just having punks. Cause you know, if goths walked in, God forbid. Now we didn't, didn't mind the goths and the metalheads, but yeah, you could always tell when someone's not, not meant to be in your, yeah. in in those safe spaces, all those communities. But it's funny. Cause like, as I say, I was a wimp before that. So technically this wasn't a safe space for me. It really wasn't. It was a very, very bad space that I shouldn't have been in at that age. None of us should have been in, but you know, who, how can you regret it when you I'm have so much fun? On you. I'm not shitting on you. Why are no, you no. yourself? 
No, I'm not. I'm I'm looking back and and with tongue in cheek. Like, how how do you go from a little nerd to having a mohawk? Really, and before that was a born again Christian. I ran away from home, and and had the whole conversion therapy. Um, oh my praying. god, I'm sorry. <laughs> I walked into it. It's all right. Like, I I can laugh about it now. Have you seen that? documentary about that it was called I feel like it, it's like got America in it like in God we trust or something and it was a documentary about all of the different conversion therapies that they tried to do and there were two men who were running this organization of you know like the names on the thing was like formerly gay and by the documentary which was shot over about five years the two men who were the, the head of the formerly gay congregation had fallen in love with each other. Of course they had. Why, why? That sounds like a South Park bit. It, it does sound like a South Park episode. <laughs> Quite an amazing. And it was just all about all these crazy conversion things. Oof, oh, wow. Very, very just have to look out for that. Um, now we're going to jump to a quick ad break. We'll be back in a moment with Tonya Pinkins and Aria Jackson. This summer, winter, spring, or fall, the first ever musical theater sitcom where you go behind the scenes of the latest West End show, The Fosse Forest Ballet. Where's the important stuff? Aha! A thousand pound a week ensemble rate. Ah, that's what Mamma Mia likes. Starring Philip Joel and a West End cast featuring Carrie Alice, Darren Denny, Louise Demon, and Oliver Savile, and more. It all started in 1987 when I was a jobbing actress working in a diner. Yeah, it's just I, I had a really bad experience when I was touring Australia with a wombat. <gasps> Darling! How long have I been mentoring you? Three months? Two years. So her name is Henrietta. The horse. Yes. I've managed to secure you an audition for the biggest, most innovative, and the latest show to be going into the West End. Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Think more along the lines of Pant. Frozen. You can watch this episode for the price of a coffee. Simply go to www.thefussyforestbelly.com. Any and all profits go back to theatre charities, acting for others, and the Theatre's Trust. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll see a grown man in sparkly tights. Tight nights. Nice. Tights. We'll move on because obviously we popped Iggy. And we'll move on to Jelly's Last Jam because uh, speaking of documentaries, I found only just last night, it was maybe about three o'clock in the morning, I, I emailed Aria and said, I found a documentary and it was about um, the making of Jelly's Last Jam. Yeah, there is one of those. Yeah, I, I got about five minutes in and I needed to sleep. <laughs> it was three o'clock in the morning. So I, I still haven't watched it, but I'm definitely going to watch it because I'll tell you what, listening to this music in my bedroom with the surround sound, turning it up, I've got two surround sounds. So I've got something like seven or eight speakers this music was so goddamn exciting and your performances holy shit i mean i'm gonna list off some names i'm, I'm not gonna be able to list off everyone but obviously gregory hines mary bond davis who when i hear that voice holy moly how, how do you work with a voice like that mm. and not just break down in tears mm -hmm. 
and, and obviously yourself and and Savion Glover still is a tap dancing genius yeah. holy moly I could only dream to have feet like that rhythm like that goodness gracious me now uh, doing this show what was the the, the vibe like in the air because this music is so exciting it really really Sir is Henderson who uh, you know is just was a legend um he worked with Lena Horne and did Lena Horne and Lady Inner Music and so the orchestrations were extraordinary and this is existing music that Luther uh, reorchestrated and Susan Birkenhead set this jazz music put lyrics to it so you know George created a new form that I think began a, a whole new strain of musical theater jelly which doesn't follow three act uh, Aristotelian story structure and he, he just played with everything he was just inventing something that had never been seen before he's a genius as well George Wolfe you no know, I wish I, I could have seen it and sadly it hasn't toured Australia it's a, another production I mean it, I, I'll be blunt when it, when it comes to a lot of shows like The Color Purple and Dream Girls we just don't get them here and that's a travesty because we have such a strong talented indigenous community and it doesn't I like I want to go and see dream girls live I want to see Casey Donovan play Effie she oh, look her up on YouTube dream girls that they just did recently that was in London it was so terrible I walked out at act one it was terrible. oh really um terrible <laughs> my god it was terrible you're on the exact right show to say that out loud <laughs> Uh, I mean, dream girls is one of my like i probably saw dream girls a dozen times like yeah. i saw it in different cities it was one of the most thrilling things like there are moments in that they're like oh my god oh my god step into the bad side and when yeah. effie's singing and i'm not telling you and she's in her regular clothes and then the curtain pulls and she's in a gown i mean there was just nothing oh really nothing like it and these people it was like you know and inspired. Joker should just leave certain things alone. Yeah. I see, I, I want to be able to see it live, but no, we just, it's, it, we had hairspray. We had hairspray and, and we got an original production of that. But unfortunately, like something like Jelly's Last Jam, I, I don't think we've got Caroline or Change. And it's, it's it pisses me off, is what I'm saying. Well, because Caroline or Change is coming back to Broadway. So it probably will tour since um, whatever his name was, who's no longer the Times critic he and Tony were having a pissing match at the time. And so <laughs> he was going to give it a bad review in advance. He wouldn't even allow it to be considered for the Pulitzer. And that extraordinary oh, really? 4,000 bar score lost out to um, Avenue Q. Just insane. But now Brantley, he says he now likes it. So it will be, um, it will be a hit, but it will not be the production that we had. And that was something that um, it'll be the happy black made production as opposed to a very politically charged um mm -hmm. hence story about a time in america that we're still back in <laughs> mm -hmm. unfortunately uh and it's just it's constant watching it from this side it, what you know from the outside looking in it's just a circus it's pretty bad but in terms of jelly's last jam i i think probably today uh, on on this topic and I know I'm I'm the white man saying that that it's it's quite possibly the overall message of this uh, is more important today, because we get to the end of this show and he turns around and and says there are no black notes in my music. Mm. I was wrong. I was wrong. And 
he he couldn't hear that his voice was in his music that whole time. That's how I interpret that, that he couldn't see the, the forest through the trees, basically. Well, he was Creole and he's coming out of Louisiana, which was this unique universe unto itself because you have the, the Canadian French and you have the, the Blacks and you have the Spanish and you have the French and you have the enslaved and you have this whole uh, group of people who are the jeunes de couleur, the Creole, and they were allowed to own slaves. And so he did not see himself as Black, period. And he looked down at Blacks. But it was there in his music all along. So he really couldn't see the forest through the trees. Yeah. And and I think these days, yeah. it's sort of, I think for a lot of people, I could name some names, Candace Owen. I was just thinking that. <laughs> Diamond and Silk. You know, and I don't mean to point out conservatives, but I am. Deal with it. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, no, I think it is quite relevant today, maybe even more than what it was back then, because everyone is very vocal. Everyone has a podcast, he says, about himself. Uh, you know, everyone has a blog and, and everyone wants to be a voice for something. I like that because I think that the world is just what we perceive of it. And if we want to experience more of the world, the more people's points of view we allow ourselves to take in, the more of the world we begin to understand. Yeah, I know. I I completely agree with that. The only issue I have is is that when people can't can't see what they're they're doing, the damage that they're doing, or or see what they're saying, or maybe can't see the hypocrisy or the contradiction in what they're saying, that maybe their actions have uh, proved them wrong all along. You know what I mean? Like they they can talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk. You know, I spent two months of the pandemic in Korea. I couldn't have come to Australia because you were not even letting people in. But then yep, sorry. Worry about letting people in and putting them in the, the, the quarantine. Korea, you know, the government puts you in a quarantine and you have to uh, pay for it. So I just felt there because it was just craziness in my own country. But at the end of my time in Korea, I really began to have an appreciation for the polarity of my country. Okay, yeah. And I thought maybe that's what our strength is, that we are so on opposite ends of the spectrum that we're holding some balance because they're so rapidly this and they're so rapidly this and that's holding something. Um, I did get a new appreciation for individuality yeah. that doesn't exist in Korea. No. And we are the only country that sort of pretends to have freedom of speech. <laughs> yeah, so in Australia, we don't. It's not in our constitution yeah. that we don't. We, when we do it, we will speak our minds and we will say, well, I have freedom of speech. But no, we, we don't. And in fact, English isn't even our official language. And I don't think it is in the American official language either. What is it? So I don't think we have one. Yeah, um, there's only f certain countries that English is the official language of. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty certain Australia and I could be wrong. Argue with you about that. By all means, I, I'm a scatterbrain and I get things wrong all the time. So yes, no, I, we, sh we should uh, fact check this. <laughs> I, was, I know you need somebody like on Joe Rogan's podcast where he has a fact checker now. This is why I need a co-host, Aria. <laughs> <laughs> Should I Google it? Oh, yeah, if you... Okay. Seven countries, English, pulling them up. 27 of them are non-sovereign. United States and Canada, United Kingdom. Okay, yeah. Ireland, Malta, Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, Tobago, Bahamas, Guyana. Australia. It is the oh. official language of Australia according to Lingoda. Oh, okay. Then So it could be wrong. <laughs> Wikipedia says Australia legally has no official language. However, 
English is by far the most common. Yeah, that's fun. But Wikipedia could be wrong too. We'll never know. You're the Australian. You should know. Yeah. Oh, well, we, we have, there, there are like a hundred something languages here because of. There's a it. lot. Yeah, the indigenous communities. Um, also, why do we even like not na- like national languages is kind of irrelevant. Like people are going to speak whatever they want to speak. Yeah, most. Yeah, probably. Well, I, I like to speak in music. <laughs> How's that for a segue? That was a really, really terrible one. Let's speak in music. Yes. Okay. So if they were to do a, a revival of this, who would you see as, as your successor? Last, Jelly's last jam today. Yeah um darn uh adrian warren yeah that's a good mm-hmm. one i don't know I, I never saw that obviously i've never stepped foot in new york city i've never been to broadway and well, i cannot wait look forward to the new broadway yes it'll be a scott rudin free broadway in the very very it least i mean if people want to delude themselves into that <laughs> craziness scott rudin yeah. is a hit maker and whether his name is on or not there will be contracts in the back where he's making the decisions and he getting paid so like yep. let's, let's, let's step out of the delusions <laughs> yeah it's good called the puppet master exactly yes yes no i uh i sort of when, when it comes to like these explosive things that i sort of sit back and i i watch everyone jumps on it and i sort of think hang on that's not what you were saying a week ago or something that sort of feel like it a, a, a becomes a bandwagon almost. So- mm-hmm. You know, I hung out with a lobbyist, a lobbyist, a former big politician, now yeah. works for one of the largest lobbying firms in the world. And he said, you know, whenever I see something in the newspaper, I always think, I wonder who placed that and what's their agenda? And it really has me like very, my attention peaked to news articles and th- that they are always branding and selling something. So for instance, when the talk about the uh, $600 million settlement for the Sacklers, I was like, no, something's wrong here. $600 million is nothing to people who made a billion dollars. And there's just a new doc that came out called Crime of the Century, which talks about how that $600 million was such a slap on the wrist that they doubled down and made even more money after that settlement and that more companies got into the business of uh, basically killing people with opioids. So you really got to be very suspect of what you read in the news. Maybe it was the producers of Beetlejuice took down Scott Rudin to get their theater back. <laughs> what was going in there? Wasn't that the uh, music man? Music man with um, Sutton- Hugh Jackman. Jackman. Oh nope, they let that shit happen. Okay, yeah. that's like a um, that's one of those. What do they say on Broadway? You either make a killing or get killed. That was gonna make a killing. Yeah, that's because obviously Beetlejuice had risen in popularity over over the months that since it had opened. That yeah, it was a bit of a uh, disappointment, I think, for that crew. It was fun. Yeah. It was fun. What kind of films have you made? Are you in school for filmmaking, Aria? Uh, I graduated, so I graduated around 2018 and I made a couple films in school and then I had my first short uh, that I released last year. Uh, it's a horror short called Phone Home and it won like best supernatural and best original story from like Hollywood Horror Fest. Would you send me a link? I'd love to see it. Oh yeah, I'll send it to you. Damn please send it to me i'd love to watch it i love horror okay yeah I, i'll send it to you and then it was received pretty well so i'm working on adapting it to a feature which would which will be fun but I will. Yes. Awesome. it's scary you got to watch it at night or not watch it at night but i watch horror movies like all day long like it's like i okay horror movies like people eat popcorn yeah i'll send it to you <laughs> and then the story for this is funny it's just something that i did with my friends and like 
five days just as practice, but uh, people liked it, which is cool. Cool. Love it. Now, I've always thought like I, I would want to do a comedic take uh, after I do the proper take so then I could cut together a spoof or a you know, comedic version for my own. Now, when you were shooting Red Pill, was there any practical jokes or anything silly that you would pull on the cast? You know, all of the visual things that you see, the cast didn't see that. They were acting to nothing. No, but <laughs> and that, that would still be quite taxing. Put in what they see later. You know, when you yeah. get good actors, you just tell them what the idea is and they can just give you a performance like they're experiencing whatever you want. And my cast, Ruben Blake, Ruben Mason, Kathy Curtin, Kathy Irby, Adeshalo Sakalumi, Jacob Flaherty, Colby Minifee. I mean, I had a kick-ass cast. I didn't have a lot of time. I shot that film in 10 days. Oh, wow. So was, it, it was no yeah. telling people how to act. It was like, look, okay, you know what the scene is? We got to shoot these 14 pages right now. We're going to shoot it like a play. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I, I loved, I loved your cast. Same. And then I had, then I was, I had a question because when I, I saw that, I remember you on Fear the Walking Dead. So did you meet Ruben through that or were you guys friends before? I was friends with Ruben's wife. Um, okay. So that's how I knew Ruben. And um, they invited me over to dinner one day and we were sitting on their terrace and Ruben's like, you know, you have to make your own things these days. And I was like, speaking of which, I have this script and I wrote yeah. a part for you and Luba. Have a check it out. <laughs> that's really cute. That's awesome. Yeah, because I was just like, I wonder if they were like on set at The Walking Dead and they were just like, hey. No, he wasn't in when I was in. And Colby and I, because mm -hmm. we're part of this group called the Actor Center, which is like a club that you pay a membership to, and then they bring in like the top teachers in the world to take classes with. So like she and I met taking a clown class together. And then she had me on Fear of the Walking Dead when I was shadowing the um, producing director, Michael, Michael Satrazimus. So, but I knew her from that. And Kathy Curtin, I knew from theater and Jake O'Flaherty, he and I, our kids met in West Hollywood Park. And Adeshalo Osakalumi, I just had seen work. Um, Harold Perrineau had agreed to do the film then he and Ruben's schedules didn't time out. So I had to choose and I, you know, I chose Ruben. So wonderful. So, um, yeah. Now, uh, Colby Minifee, I, when I, I, I thought it was her the whole time because she was in Jessica Jones and um, Marvelous Mrs. Oh, Maisel. And she's just got such a thing about her the way she delivers her lines and but she didn't have like I, I don't think she had any if many lines in it but just by her face I every time I would see a flash of her I'd be like is that her is that her but I couldn't look it up because I didn't want spoilers of what was going to happen in the or I didn't want to accidentally read something like sometimes she'll see that a character might have two names and that sort of gives it away that they're you know they've got a secret identity now you wrote directed produced this film but you also did the production design Am I reading too much into your use of color? Because there were some real vibrant colors through the start of this film. And as the film went along, they degraded, except right the reds. I got it. Right on. Awesome. And the, the so I speak the language of film. I studied film as well uh, and, and also did my own film at 15 years old, right before I became a punk, actually. That's probably why I became a punk, because I made a film too young. So okay, I'm not reading too much into this. You're not reading too much into it. Okay. Nothing. I mean, I think the beauty of making a film is uh that you know that you that i financed myself was that i got to make the film i wanted to make yeah. and no matter how much my producers or anybody else said i don't like that and that doesn't work for me i'd be like okay uh, yeah you're entitled to your opinion and you can go make that film with your money yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm making this film to please me 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I'll tell you what, that uh, because I speak film language, like cinema. Yeah, I already know the sequel. And so you don't know what happens in the sequel. So, <laughs> and I well, knew true. before I shot the original. So it's like, okay, there's nothing, there's not, nothing wasted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. I'll, I'll remember that next time I'll be able to get to see it again. Now, uh, this end song, American Girl. Okay, if I was to hear that on its own, just, you know, turn the radio on, I'd probably think, wow, this is a nice little jam, or, you know, something good for summer. But seeing it at the end of this movie with that holy shit ending, because that's a that's a ballsy ending to make in today's age, let's face it. People don't want to see an ending like that. They want a happy ending. They're not going to get it. Too fucking bad. But then that song hits and it's it's haunting and it's creepy. And I, Laura Bell Bundy is adorable. Yes. And now I'm kind of scared of her. Thanks <laughs> to you. Sorry, Laura Bell Bundy. I love your work, honey. If you're, you're not listening to this, but if you ever do hear this, please come on my show. When I heard that song, I was I was doing a little cameo in a, in a piece that Laura Bell had done for the, the women uh, political candidates. And she let me hear okay, the yeah. album. And I was like, Laura, this song, this song, I, I gotta have this song in my movie. And I yeah. read the script and she, you know, all of her collaborators had to read it. I was like, I love Counterpoint. And so the the sort of the irony of that song after that final scene, I, that just, you know, I love that. It's like, it just makes me laugh. Yeah. Have you seen the song, Aria movie? Have you seen uh, I watched. I, I watched the film, yeah. Okay. I was just very surprised by the ending too. For me, I love that. And even talking to Tassos Iliopoulos about the score and trying to explain to him how it's like, I like the score to do opposite things of what's happening in the scene. Like, it's like the, that last movement of the film is horror. And I'm like, but the music's got to be victory because for them, it's victory. Yeah. That's, and that's why it's so haunting because that's, it's not some angry metal song. Or it's not some screechy violins or even just a soft, you know, ponderous violin. Orchestral, Wagnerian, it's, yes, it's everything we think of as happiness. It's Betty Crocker. It's White Picket Fence. It's 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 somewhere that's green. That's the song that Audrey was singing. Uh, and yeah, no, it, it left me quite unsettled. And because I, I watched that as soon as you sent it to me, actually, um, the, the screener thank you very much for for yes no I, I, I it's an absolute privilege but yeah no that that left me absolutely gobsmacked and then that song and i've listened to it quite a few times since to see if i can shake those images out of my head because that that it's just it's heartbreaking and it's terrifying and yeah no i didn't didn't say that coming so well done <laughs> well done on that i'll tell you that um was was that your first time auditioning your peers for something nobody auditioned nobody auditioned you just gave the nobody, part when you're not paying people their rate you're asking them to do you a favor yeah True. no I, I i know that all too well um, <laughs> although I, I it is fun to to make them jump through hoops just, now i love yeah. actors too much and i feel like when you hire really good ones and you know what they can do you just get out of their way and you just let yeah. them do what they do and they show you things. And I think one of the things people, you know, I was looking at some class about analyzing film. I'm like, you can't analyze a film or analyze an actor's performance in a film. One of the things I get to do as a filmmaker is I get to go, mm, I don't really like the reaction they did on that line. Let's go pull a reaction from somewhere else and put it there. 
The director yeah. creates a performance in a film. And the editor, yeah, that's it. No, look, I know that because I move Gareth's laughter in episodes to make me sound funnier, but I <laughs> mute my laughter from him so no one knows that he's funny. We're going to jump to another quick ad break. We'll be back in a moment with Tonya Pinkins. G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Crack, thud, the human trips over the uneven ground as the Twanimal blows out the lantern. Watch your step, Kapoor says a little too late. Why did you put the light out? Ollycosh, an open flame near hay bales? And here I thought you were smart, sir. Toniston agrees with how silly he must have sounded. What are we doing out here? The boy asks as they blindly walk around the side of the house, where they're greeted by giant shadows rising up above them. Unable to properly see in the pitch black darkness, Toniston presumes they are the three hay bales. He looks around. The plains are vast and the spotlights out in the distance, now a purple colour, seem to be too far away to bring any real light to them. They do, however, look very pretty dancing on the rippling oceanic sky. Stand back, the silhouetted cub paw warns with his gruff but friendly voice, clearly able to see in the darkness better than the human, who had constantly refused to eat his carrots. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. I've just got two more questions. I won't, I won't keep you any longer. And I, I'm not sure if Ari has anything else, but if 10 year old Tonya popped up into the call, what advice would she give you? Not the other way around. If 10 year old Tonya popped yep. into the call, she would say, don't get married, don't have children. And if you aren't going to listen to me and you're going to do it anyway, be really tough on them. It'll make them stronger people after all. I always say the reason why I've, I raised my nephew is to tell him never to have children. Um, yeah, this is just more fuel for me not to have children. Yes. I was already, I already <laughs> felt like, I feel like I shouldn't have kids, but now I'm just like, oh, this is a sign to really <laughs> buckle down. If you want to live your life permanently tired and not by choice, have children. You know, I love my children and they're, yes. you know, I've had wonderful things with them, but what I will say about it, it is it's forever. Yeah. Um, even when they're adults and they say, you're only as happy as your least happy child. Oh, yeah. as a mother, you feel all of your children's pain and you hurt when they're hurting. And because my childhood was so horrific, I was very easy on my kids. How old are, how old are your children? They're all adults. 
So my, me and my nephew, he's 11. And because we're raising him, like my parents and me, we thought, you know, we'll spoil him a bit and take him to Disneyland. And yeah, you know, like the first time I went on a trip was a big deal. And I took my children yeah. on trips all their lives. And so it just didn't even mean anything to them. Like yeah. going to Broadway or traveling the world was like meaningless to them. <laughs> yeah. Whereas for me, it took me till I was 30 years old to get to Disneyland. The, the first time I left the country, I was 30 years old and I cried because, oh my God, I'm in Japan and oh my God, I'm in China and Vietnam. Like, you know what I mean? It was amazing. I'm jealous. I want to go there. I want to go to Japan and uh, Thailand so bad. And I think I'll probably try to go 2022. Yes, uh, wait, wait till the pandemic is well and truly over. Yeah, I'm not planning to travel uh, international for a little bit. Right now, they're still letting anybody in. You know, Bali is my favorite place in Asia. Yeah. And I really liked Vietnam. Oh, Vietnam's beautiful. I love traveling China. I haven't been to Japan yet. Oh, it's it's wonderful. Thailand is nice, but you know, the sex business, sex trade is so big in Thailand. It's kind of a little like, it's a little tough. <laughs> like I, I've been to Bali twice. Um, I've never been to Thailand, but my beef with those two countries is there's too many bloody Australians. <laughs> I'm not going to a foreign country to see Australians and to meet dr drunk Australians. How far is the flight? It's probably not that far for you. Um, far home. Bali would be about six hours, I think. Wow. The last Something time like I went that. to Bali, I wanted to go to Australia, but the friend that I was going to meet there, like he like didn't contact me in the last week before I went. And so I had to make a decision. And instead of head continuing, I guess that's East. Or that's west. I went east and went and did, went all the way over to India instead, because you know coming to Australia and not having like one friend didn't feel good. Because it's also it's so expensive. Like a hostel mm -hmm. in Australia is like a hundred and some dollars a night for a dorm room. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's it's pretty ridiculous here. And like even when I travel, I'll I'll do backpackers. Doesn't matter where I am, but it's cheaper and I get to meet people. You get to actually hang out with them and, and no one's got this pretension of a five-star hotel or anything like that. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're just lovely, normal people. That is totally the way I travel. I yep. got to stay in a hostel because you meet all the people who are having the adventures and that's how you find out what to do that you can't find out in a book. Exactly. And, and then you're just hanging out with all these people that you wouldn't meet at any other time. And, you know, I've sometimes traveled and stayed in a hotel, but you just don't meet adventurous people. Like the people who stay in the four star no. hotels, they're not the adventurers. They're the people who wanted to take their country with them to another country. <laughs> yes, e exactly right. You know, that's, and I've, I've done, gone from backpackers and like the worst backpackers in the world and then gotten on a five-star cruise so i've done both like one after the other i much prefer the five-star cruise I, I will say now okay last question what's your experience with standing ovations because we've had an ongoing discussion on this show about there seems to be a change in audiences these days in in how often they're giving a standing ovation and have you felt that effect yourself uh well, I haven't been on Broadway since Holler If You Hear Me, and I didn't have okay, to, yeah. to get a standing ovation. But I would say that the bar is pretty low. It is, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. is. Like the thing people are giving standing ovations for, I'm like, that, that, that was some mediocrity. 
yeah yeah and and look yeah. I, I probably look like an absolute asshole but i'm on a rampage to get as many people on this side as possible let's take down this standing ovation please dish yeah. it out when it's deserved yeah that, that's yeah. over because of the yeah. branding thing and because of the influencer thing it's like i've seen hamilton 14 times and um now to go see hamilton you can't even hear the show anymore because of the screaming it's almost like one of my acting teachers said, an audience member applauds like this. Someone who's trying to be the star applauds like this. And now you go to see Hamilton and the audience is all about them. Look at how much I'm applauding. Look how much I'm screaming. Mm. And then you can't even see the show anymore. Damn. It's actually um, coming to Melbourne soon. They, it's funny, they announced an exclusive Sydney season. $200 a ticket. You have to come to Sydney to see it. Three months later, oh, so you're going to be coming to Melbourne in a couple of months or next year or whatever. It's like, what was the freaking point? It's fantastic. It inspires yep. me every time I've seen it. I've listened to the album. I love it. And it's Get Out too. Yes. <laughs> and, and did you know, I don't know if many people realize this, but Get Out, uh, the Jordan Peele film, is a spiritual sequel to being John Malkovich. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Catherine Keener is the connecting thread here. The technology, Catherine Keener, who okay. plays it and she does the, the stirring of the tea. Okay. The technology they're using in Get Out is the same technology from being John Malkovich. You can look this up. I'm not making this up. And what technology are we talking about? The, the technology to get into um, John Malkovich's brain. Really? I'm this up is this a fan theory i is this it was a it started off as a theory i believe that jordan peele got asked did i say that right i can't say the word ask uh, and he um then confirmed it that it was oh. it's not a direct sequel it's a spiritual sequel like that's the intention that Catherine keener was cast i think for that reason hmm. So there we go. We've learned something new today. I hit it up. Digital Spy says the theory explains that Get Out is actually a loose sequel to being John Malkovich. Oh, wow. There we go. See, people at home, I am not as stupid as I sound. Jordan Peele confirms it. Now I got to go watch, uh, you know, uh, being John Malkovich. I was yeah. just thinking that. It's like when you watch the Marvel movies in chronological order, now you have to watch <laughs> being John Malkovich and Get Out in chronological order in the Jordan Peele cinematic universe. Yeah. I've never Marvels in, in, in order. I did watch the Zack Schneider, whatever this last, I just watched that the other night. I kind of like the Zack Schneider, but I liked it. I love my zombies. Though. I'm a zombie lover. I was with Me too. Fisher on something. So I watched the four hour thing with him as Cyborg like three times. Yeah. Oh, Justice League. Yeah, Justice League. I watched that three times. Yeah. I liked Army of the Dead. People were giving Zack Snyder like shit for like DPing it himself and then that lens he used because he used like a vintage Canon lens that has like a 0.95 depth of field so that's how he did all those like uh hazy shots it was just like super shallow just like me and people were just like it looks so shitty and I was like I love it like I was looking at the lens today it's like three thousand dollars on eBay but I was like damn I kind of want it what'd you shoot your film on I we shot my film on uh Black Magic okay I but and then like my other films we just did like reds and stuff but yeah we just shoot it on cinema cameras but it's I said reds and stuff those are very high-end cameras like you know most young people are shooting on iPhones yeah <laughs> I yeah uh I'm more of I'm an equipment person like I'm a photographer too so I try to have decent lenses and camera bodies but uh, you can shoot whatever you want on iPhones now. It all looks, if it ends up on just like Instagram, 
it doesn't yeah. really matter. But if it nah. gets blown up, you should probably try to shoot it on something higher resolution. Even with the yeah. moment lenses and the 4K and all of that. Uh, I mean, wasn't that who's that director that does all the movies on his iPhone? Isn't that Steven Soderbergh? Yeah, I was going to say he does his on iPhones. Yeah, now he does. Yeah, sort of. He's done two feature films on iPhones. Yeah. One was Unsane, I think, and then the other one was like a basketball film. Yeah. I, I thought he okay. quit. Yeah, but he's probably still decked out. Like he probably still has like thousands of dollars worth of lighting equipment, and then obviously sound equipment. So it yeah. it cancels itself out a little bit. Was Unsane any good? I never even heard of it. Uh, I didn't watch it. I think what I know it for is just because it was shot on an iPhone. Mm. I think that's the one that was shot on an iPhone. Yeah, you're yeah. right. It's the one that was uh, un, High Flying Bird and Unsane were shot on iPhones. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you shoot Red Pill on? We shot it on a red Epic Dragon. Yeah, well, that's way over my head. But yeah, Ariel, <laughs> I have no idea. Maybe someone at home might know yeah. what, what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> so I, I think my questions were more about like equipment and location because you said you paid for it yourself. So did everybody just do you a favor or did were people doing how do you like how did you know the dp and um, the crew so the first dp that i was going to go with was this really you know hot young um steady cam operator and when you have a hot young up-and-coming dp like ari was going to give them a camera package and mm -hmm. like two weeks before we started shooting ari was like we're overbooked we don't even have enough you know cameras for people who want to buy them so we ended up losing our dp because mm couldn't afford to pay the camera package and so the dp john hudak he understood the film because he said he like grew up down the street from like a ku klux klan church and he's married to a, a latina woman and he and his ac own a red epic dragon together so i could pay them um which they were one of the more expensive parts of the film but i got you know him his ac his camera and he brought lights. So that okay. was um, him. And we got him through my mentor, who was the man, you know, like when I did my budget for my film, I'd basically been shadowing uh, directing for a few years. And, you know, everybody's like, oh my God, yes, you can shadow. You'd be a great director. You're a great actor. But then when it would come to asking for the job, it was always like, oh, there's so many people in line ahead of you. And I kept thinking about Ava DuVernay, who was like, I didn't go to film school. I just made a movie. And I was like, I just spent three years of my life shadowing with people and nobody's giving me a job. So I'm going to make a movie. Yeah. And um, I went and got the budget done because I know professional people and they're like, you don't have enough time or money to make this movie. And so I asked the second person, they're like, even that person's budget and time is too little. And then I met a man who has now done 32 films in 31 years. And he said, if you're going to invest your money, there is no nothing, no one to stop you from making this movie. He said, no, you can't pay union rate, but you're giving them an opportunity. And he basically taught me how to be a producer, how to talk to people from my passion and get them excited to come and want to work for me for the $2 I could afford to give them. Mm -hmm. And so people started coming on because they liked the project. Like my sound designer, Paul Sue, he did Salt and Motherless Brooklyn. And my film is in surround sound. Like if anybody ever gets to see it in a movie theater, it's in the state of the art 7.2 surround sound, which he gave me because he believed in the project. Yeah, that's really nice. And then the location I love too. Where where did you film it? It's a girlfriend of mine's house upstate New York. Um, okay. I visit her and you know I was like, wow, your house is like a horror movie house. And she was like, I don't know if this is a compliment or an insult. So that was like <laughs> a gift that was a whole lot of money. The car we got at the last minute, a gift 
you know, so there were a lot of things that people gave me. Those actors were, you know, working at scale and back end points, which, you know, it'll be 10 years before they see them. The catering was very expensive. The VFX was very expensive and shitty, and they were the worst people to work with. <laughs> oh, really? Are you going to redo them, or is this film already? I'm done. Okay. I'm not going to redo them. It's like when I went to go and and ask other people, it was, I mean, we spent so much money getting them redone and, and asking them to redo it better, and they just kept doing it shitty. And then they would say, well, you didn't pay for it to be good. And I was like, if it wasn't going to be good. Yeah. That's their branding, I believe. Yeah. That's definitely not somebody. Yeah. There's like, work we, did is we just recut it. Probably the cut you saw where we just took some of the shots. We just recut it and put reactions in instead of the VFX shots. Cause it was just like, whatever. But still like you're working on pretty much no budget. So exactly. I mean, it costs, you know, it costs a few hundred thousand dollars, but, yeah. um, and most of that was post like post yeah. costs more than the, the production. Um, that movies get made in post. Mm -hmm. Yeah, five editors. It was difficult finding male editors who would listen to me and do what I wanted them to do and take my notes. Yeah, that's a huge issue. Huge issue. So I ended up going to Seoul, Korea, and working with a filmmaker who's you know you can't hire her as an editor, but Minji Kong and I love South Korean horror, and she really brought the shape of it together and had a vision for it. So and then where do, what do you hope to do with the film? Do you want to sell it to? Amazon or um I don't have no interest in selling it and um we have like three distribution offers on the table and so now I'm learning this whole deliverables process so that's more money out of my pocket to do the deliverables mm -hmm. looking at like a fourth quarter release and depending on which of these companies we go with you know they'll take it back to all the people my sales agent wasn't the best you know I went with somebody who I love and would never blow up a relationship over the business part but they just you know they weren't they were not hustling and closing the deal so yeah. I think that there are places that turned us down because of she wasn't selling well that we may end up placed on through the distributors because yeah. <laughs> okay. there's only so many places that you can go and you know everybody's got to go to the same places so um, there's a big company that we have an offer from, but every filmmaker I know who went with them has nothing but horror stories. And so I think she's really pushing me to go with this company because they have a big name and I've just heard nothing. And I'm fortunate that I didn't spend money that I couldn't afford to spend. So mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, maybe people won't find it until my second film. Um, so it's like, you know, I'm going to just keep building a body of work. Yeah. yeah. And then you just hope to direct like feature films from now on like that's what you want to do narrative no commercial i am you know going on meetings to direct for other people but ultimately i i write and direct social political horror like i have a a spider horror that i really really want to make and uh yeah. i really really want to make this spider horror movie you know that's really my baby next and then i have another sci-fi futuristic social justice activist people would call it a horror too so that's just what my jam is. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about horror. It's it's very broad and you can make a horror out of anything. Yeah. Barely be a horror, which is nice for the genre. I think it's a, there's definitely not a, not a lot of female voices in horror whatsoever. So I think it's something that, cause I, I would like to break into, that's what my film is, is a horror film. And when I've done interviews with producers about it, they're always just like, yeah, there's like no black women in horror. And it's just like, there's literally none. There's not that many. There are a lot. They just aren't getting the resources that white guys get. Yeah, for sure. Do it. Mm. Do it. 
Yeah. And then uh, this whole thing of there is no this thing and that. There is no gays in the military. Just because yeah. there is not doesn't mean there fucking can't be people. Goodness gracious me. Yeah. Use your imagination. Yeah. Just being a female director is hard because I, me and Tanya, she's, you said you've had like, uh, what was that? Editors that don't want to listen to you? I've had I've editors, yeah. Cinematographers that have, like on my own projects, I've had crew members say no to me asking them to like switch out a lens. And then I've had crew members explain to me what exposure is in front of the actors when I am a photographer. So it's like, I obviously know what exposure is. I've been, so they just try to like, talk down to you in front of everyone and it's so rude one time on set my dp he might be hearing i don't think he's gonna listen to this uh he i was asking him to switch to 35 and i was like can you switch to 35 can you switch to 35 and he was just like just flat out ignoring me like i was right next to him asking him to switch to 35 and he was just like stonewalling me so i walked over to the sound guy and i was like can you tell him to switch to a 35 so the sound guy walked over to the DP and he was just like, can you switch to 35? And the DP was like, yeah, I'll switch. And then he switched the lenses out. And then every, and he did, and that was in front of the entire crew and everyone was just like, wow. That's that's deliberate arrogance. So rude. My first short, which had uh, Loretta Devine and James Pickens, it never got finished because my entire male, my DP wouldn't shoot what I wanted him to shoot. My entire male crew mutinied on me in some way. I had like special trick skaters. They stole that footage. I mean, like, I don't even have the footage for my first short that I ever made 20 years ago because everybody stole something and the film never got made. All the guys. Yeah, it's it's very frustrating. And then there and then the DP that was disregarding me on set on uh national international female filmmakers day, he made a post about like supporting female filmmakers. And then I was just like, oh. that's why social media is so like, you can't believe anything people post. Yeah, performative. It's so performative. It's so arrogant. Yeah. The most vocal men against misogyny, I tell you right now, I probably have proof that they are the most misogynist yeah. behind the scenes. It's yeah. really hard. It's, it's really hard to trust yeah. what anybody posts, which is what it's just easy. I just believe the opposite of what people post. So like if somebody's just like, ah, loving life, I'm just like, you hate life, don't you? Be <laughs> honest. I just assume it's the opposite. Yeah, pretty much. But yes. Anyway, so I, I think we've, we've kept you long enough, Tonya. Thank you so much for joining us. So much. And I look forward to watching the film, Ari. Thank you for having Yeah, me. I'll send it after this. All right. It was a pleasure. Can't wait yes. to get to Australia. It's a place I haven't been, Australia and New Zealand. So I'm looking forward to it. Yes, definitely. And look, now you've got at least one friend here. I'll be there. And I'll I know. I want to visit Australia too. We're going to come to see you, Aaron. Everyone come to Australia and come and see me <laughs> because I am single and lonely. <laughs> Except for your 11-year-old. Except for the 11-year-old, yeah. <laughs> Just before you go, uh, where can people find you on social media? can find me at uh on twitter facebook instagram as tanya pinkins and you can find the film at red pill movie 2020 and red pill movie 20 awesome and that's obviously doing the festivals circuit now is there somewhere that people can stream it we can buy a copy to stream it looks like the fourth quarter probably either september or october depending on how quickly i get these deliverables done oh fingers crossed okay. uh and uh, so anything else to plug you know yeah 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 just you know follow sign up for my newsletter because i'm always doing something i can't even keep track of all the things i'm doing i'm always doing play readings or concerts and 
you know, I'm always creating. That's what I was put on the earth to do is just create. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And win awards, apparently. Goodness gracious me. I'm on Run the World. I'm sorry. I'm on the series Run the World, the new star series Run the World. See, I forget. Yeah. And I also just finished doing the ABC miniseries um, Women of the Movement, uh, which is the story. Amy Till and Emmett Till. I play his grandmother, Al McCarthy. Oh, that's that's a heartbreaking. So sad. Absolutely hard. So I, even in Australia, I know about about that poor yeah, little so boy. I, both of those TV series. series. <laughs> oh goodness gracious me! Um, no, and again, thank you so so much. It has been an absolute. I know. Obviously, we didn't talk too much about music because there's so much of your career to talk about. All right. I'm blown away that you would come to this silly little show so but anyway be sure to check out aria's films at ariajackson.net and also be sure to follow us on twitter at thrush and treasure or instagram at thrush and treasure podcast plus we're on facebook at thrush and treasure and also be sure to check out the toniston tales we'll be back next week we will be joined by our extra special guest noni mccullum who kids would know from her time in High Five. And my special guest co-host is going to be Gareth's former torture victim. Ooh, I wonder who that could be. Anyways, you take care and we shall see you next time. Bye. Hey, bro. We'll have a good night.